You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. And let's continue in our time of worship by opening God's Word together. If you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Now, normally when we start a new series like this, especially if it's a long series, we give you an ESV scripture journal that will carry you throughout the entire series. And I told you we would have those journals available for you today. Unfortunately, the shipment has been delayed. You know how shipping is around the holidays. So uh, one box of 25 came in yesterday. The rest are supposed to come in tomorrow. I thought about bringing that one box and just putting it in the middle of the room and letting you go at it Hunger Games style. May the odds be ever in your favor. But then on second thought, I felt like that just wasn't very Jesus-like. So we're going to hold off until next Sunday, and hopefully you'll get your journals next week. Grab your Bible. I hope you brought that today. And we're looking at Exodus 1 and 2. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. You'll find some hardback Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. Take one now and use it to follow along with us today, and then just hang on to that Bible. That's our gift to you. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Exodus 1 and 2 is our text. I want to read Exodus 1, 1 to 10 to get us started. Listen carefully to God's word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out... They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The Exodus epic is one of the most gripping stories ever told. There have been countless movie adaptations. I jotted down just a few of them that I could think of to bring to your attention. Of course, there's the Ten Commandments, 1956, right, starring Charlton Heston. Then there was the Prince of Egypt. 1998, featuring the voice of Val Kilmer, Iceman. Then there was Exodus, Gods and Kings in 2014, starring Christian Bale and directed by Ridley Scott, who I usually quite like, but I heard this one wasn't worth seeing. Don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen it. It's only got a 35% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, if you follow that sort of thing. Here's the critics' consensus of that film. While sporadically stirring and suitably epic in its ambitions, Exodus, Gods and Kings can't quite live up to its classic source material. In other words, once again, we have a movie that's just not as good as the book. (laughs) For the next five months, we're going to study the book. Exodus has 40 chapters, so it will take us a while to get through it. 
Now, because of the ubiquity of the story, probably most of us have these little bits of knowledge, bits and pieces of knowledge, right? We know the names of the main characters. We know the number of commandments. In this series, we're going to try to bring it all together. And we're going to discover how this story that began so long ago in the sands of Egypt speaks so powerfully to the church here and now. Now, it's always helpful to have some knowledge of the forest before we look at each tree. The book of Exodus has a number of important themes, but one dominant idea that makes all other themes necessary. And that one dominant idea of the book is that there is but one true God. There is but one true God. That is not a proclamation that we hear very often in our culture, is it? But it is true. It is true. The entire book of Exodus really is about the uniqueness and the presence of the one true God. And the way we learn about the uniqueness of God is by going on a journey. The Greek word Exodus means departure. This is a journey story. The journey of God's people from Egypt to Mount Sinai and the journey of God to dwell among his people. Underlying all the events of Exodus is the desire of the one true God that people would come to a deeper knowledge of him, both intellectually and relationally. And so my prayer for you is that throughout this study, yours would be a story of journey. That as we journey with God's ancient people, you too would be on a journey to a deeper knowledge of the one true God. Now the story of Exodus begins, as I've already mentioned, in the sands of Egypt. In the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, God sets his gracious gaze upon a man named Abraham. And he promises Abraham that Abraham's descendants would one day become a great nation, that they would dwell in a great land, and that through them, all the nations of the earth would experience great blessing. The book of Exodus picks up the story hundreds of years after Abraham. God's people, the Israelites, sometimes referred to as the Hebrews in our text, they have indeed expanded. They've become a great people, but they don't yet have their own land. In fact, they're slaves. They're slaves in Egypt, living under an anti-God tyrant. All of Exodus 1 and 2, our focus for today, all of Exodus 1 and 2, it's teeming with death. Death on the Nile, that would be a good title of this opening section of Exodus. Chapter 1, it's all about the death of God's people, the slaughter of innocent children. Chapter 2, it's about the murder of an Egyptian taskmaster, among other things. There's death here, there's death everywhere. Does all of this death mean the death of the divine promise? Have things in the world become so bad that God has abandoned his promise, abandoned his people? Let's see what the story has to say to that. We'll take things one chapter at a time today. Chapter one, death to God's people. Look again at verses eight to 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. We're told a couple of important details here at the very beginning. This is a new king, a new pharaoh, one who does not know Joseph. We know from the book of Genesis that Joseph was an Israelite. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. Eventually, he became the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph and the old pharaoh were friends from work. They worked together, but now Joseph is dead, and there's a new pharaoh. And this new pharaoh views the Israelites as a threat to national security. All of chapter 1 is centered around three policies of the pharaoh. Attempts to deal with the problem of God's people as he sees it. Now one thing you must understand about this figure, the pharaoh. Throughout the entire narrative, the pharaoh is an anti-God figure. His policies will try to stop the expansion of the Israelites, which means his policies are trying to stop the fulfillment of the divine promise, of God's promise to his people. You'll become a great nation in a great land, and through you all the nations of the world will experience great blessing. The Pharaoh wants to stop all of that, which means this is a clash. It's a clash between a wannabe God and the one true God. Who will be victorious? The Pharaoh issues his policies, the first of which is enslavement. Verses 13 and 14, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The idea with this first policy seems to be we will work them to death. We'll give them a quota they can't possibly meet. We'll beat them when they ask for rest. We'll let them spend as little time as possible with their families. We will make life so miserable that death will seem like a release, not a punishment. And eventually, they'll all be gone. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. God's people continue to expand The Israelites become more in number and greater in strength. And so the Pharaoh issues a second policy, genocide in secret. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, if you're one of the children or younger students in worship today and you're not familiar with this word genocide, it refers to the murder not of a person, but of an entire group of people, an entire nation or ethnic group. The Pharaoh now tries to involve the midwives in the genocide, the wiping out of all of the Israelites. He's worried about future warriors who might rise up against him. So he wants to take out all of the future men. If he does that, then the females will be sold into domestic slavery and eventually the Israelites will melt away. He tries to involve the midwives, the ancient version of the labor and delivery department. The evilness of his plan is seen in the fact that he tries to convert into agents of death 
these very women who usually were associated with new life. Secretly, he goes to the midwives and he gives them strict orders. Kill every male. Every Hebrew boy must die. But these midwives, the text tells us that they fear the one true God. They don't fear this evil king of Egypt. They fear the one true God and so they disobey the Pharaoh. They don't do what he says. It's interesting. There are a number of figures in the Exodus narrative that have prominent roles, but not many of them are named. The Pharaoh isn't named. In fact, none of the Pharaohs in the entire Exodus story, none of them are named, which is one of the reasons that scholars have such a hard time establishing the date of the Exodus event. Despite the fact that they had divine status in their day, in the biblical account, the pharaohs are treated as non-entities, nobodies. We never learn their names. But these Hebrew midwives, these humble women, we're still talking about them today. We know their names thousands and thousands of years later. Their names were Shifra and Pua. They've been known throughout the ages. And in that day, God protected them. He protected them and he blessed their families. Believer, when you fear not an earthly king, but the one true God, when you follow him, when you stand against evil in the right way, God will bless you. He will bless your family. That's what we learn from these Hebrew midwives. Again, the Pharaoh's policy fails. So he issues a third one. Now, genocide by the public. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. At the end of chapter one, Pharaoh has made every person in his kingdom an accomplice in his plan to slaughter the Israelites. Every person in Egypt must get their hands dirty, bloody, for Egypt to retain the power that it has. Imagine living at this time. Imagine being a newly married couple, expecting your first child. No ultrasounds in those days, of course. Nine months of waiting. Nine months of waiting to discover if your child would live or die. Nine months of waiting to find out if she will live or if he will die with such a monstrous nationwide plan in place what hope is there for God's people who will come to their rescue and that brings us to chapter 2 death to tyranny now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman the woman conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. 
Chapter 2 begins with the birth of this child who will later be named Moses. Everything about the beginning of chapter 2 gives us, the reader, the impression that Moses is being raised and protected to one day become the rescuer of God's people. That seems to be where the narrative is going. But Moses' story takes an unexpected turn. It's been said that every great story has three parts. The beginning, the middle, and the twist. This story indeed has a twist, and we'll see it in just a moment. In chapter 1, everything is centered around the three policies of the Pharaoh. In chapter 2, everything is centered around three moments in Moses' life. The first is his birth. He's born to these unnamed parents, unnamed at this stage of the narrative. They protect him as long as they can. But then his mother comes up with a plan. She fashions a basket, a little basket boat, and she places her son in the basket among the reeds of the river bank. And then she stations his sister close by to watch what happens. Now, practically speaking, it's not immediately clear to us exactly what the mother was doing here, how this is going to save the child's life. If you grew up in church hearing this story, you probably had this image in your head of baby Moses floating in his basket boat down the middle of the Nile River. That's the last thing the mother would have wanted because it would have meant that she lost track of him as he drifted toward the open Mediterranean and it would have probably meant an involvement with a Nile crocodile. So that's the last thing she wants and the text tells us that that's not what happened. She places him in this basket among the reeds by the river bank. She strategically places Moses amongst all of these aquatic plants so that he'll stay anchored there so that he won't drift. Her hope must have been that someone would stumble upon him, perhaps someone that could save him. And then that brings us to the second moment, the rescue of the rescuer. Verse five, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. The mother's plan is successful. Someone must be looking out for this child because of all the people in Egypt who could have taken this path to the river, of all the people in Egypt who could have looked in this particular location, it is the Pharaoh's daughter, the princess herself. She sees the baby and she has pity, compassion for him. She rescues him out of the water. Now, theologically speaking, this is very significant. The Egyptians viewed the Nile as the power of life and the power of death. And when we see that, then we should recognize a biblical pattern. We should see that here, as he often does, God takes a place of death and he converts it into a place of life and salvation. This story of Moses is pointing us in every direction and in every direction we see God. It's pointing us back to the story of Noah, whom God rescued from the waters of destruction. It's pointing us forward ultimately to Jesus, who went to the place of death, the cross, to bring life and salvation to God's people. God is at work here. God provides a way for Moses to come out of the river and into the Pharaoh's own household. Everything in the narrative at this point 
is leading us to the conclusion that God has a great plan that Moses now within the Pharaoh's household is going to be in a position to bring reform from within. Praise God, this is going to be the death of tyranny, the end of the slavery of God's people. But this is where the story takes that unexpected turn. The beginning, the middle, and the twist. The third moment in Moses' life is many, many years later. The narrative jumps Picking up the story in verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Just as it seems that Moses is going to be in a position of power in the Pharaoh's household, now he becomes a murderer. Look at verse 12. Moses has grown up. He's been in the Pharaoh's house. He's had probably an Egyptian education. But all along the way, he's never once been okay with the way his people have been treated. Finally, the day comes that he just can't take it anymore and he takes things into his own hands. He takes matters into his own hands. Verse 12, he looked this way and that. Seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. This is premeditated murder. And to make matters worse, Moses tries to cover his sin by burying the body of the Egyptian in the sand. And he thinks he's gotten away with all of it. He thinks he's gotten away with it. But sins like this, they have a way of getting out. All sin eventually will be exposed no matter how deep in the ground we've buried it. The next day, there are two Hebrews. They're having a dispute, a conflict. Maybe it was an engineering dispute, an argument about which tool was best for the job. Who knows? Moses steps in to mediate. But one of the Hebrews rejects his mediation and says to Moses, who made you judge over us? Do you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? He or someone he knows must have seen the murder. Moses' secret is out. And so now there's only one thing he can do. He must run. He's forced to leave Egypt because the Pharaoh finds out about it and he wants to hunt Moses down and have him killed. So Moses leaves. He runs away and he leaves his people behind. Believer, when you stand against evil. When you fear and follow the one true God, God will bless you. That's the lesson we learned from the Hebrew midwives. But the way in which you take the stand matters. And the time of the stand matters. Moses had passion. He had zeal. He saw what was wrong with the world and he wanted to set things right. He was a man of passion, but he didn't have patience. It was wrong for him to murder the Egyptian. It was wrong for him to seek to lead his people out of Egypt without God's instruction. He had passion, but no patience. And if you have passion, but no patience, well, that's just another way of saying you're prideful. You're not willing to wait on God's perfect timing. You're not willing to wait until God gives you the way forward, 
You're just ready to go. You're ready to move. You think you have the answer. Now that's just pride going by one of its many aliases. So Moses leaves. He goes to the land of Midian. And there in Midian, he finds a wife. He starts a family. He becomes a shepherd. As a shepherd, he develops many of the skills and learns the humility that he will later need to lead God's people. See, despite Moses' failure, his terrible failure, God still had a plan for him. Moses' work was not done yet, but he would wait. For 40 years, Moses would live in the land of Midian. 40 years. But the name he gives his child in Midian is a hint that he has not forgotten his people. He has not forgotten God's people. Does all of this death, all of this death and failure in chapters one and two, does it mean the death of the divine promise? What was God's promise to Abraham so long ago? Your descendants will be a great nation. They'll dwell in a great land. And through them, all the nations of the world will experience great blessing. But at this stage of the story, the Israelites are slaves. Children are being slaughtered. The one who appeared to be the rescuer who had some resemblance of a rescuer is now a renegade living elsewhere, leaving the people behind. Have things in the world become so bad that God has abandoned his promise, abandoned his people, given up? At the end of chapter 2, we find the unmistakable answer to that question. Is this the death of the divine promise? Oh, no. No, God's promise is an undying promise. Look at the final verses of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Decades go by. Moses' life in Midian, it goes on. Back in Egypt, the Pharaoh's life comes to an end, and he's replaced. The Israelites, still enslaved, cry out to God for help. In much of Exodus 1 and 2, God has been hidden from the scene. He's not been in focus. But here in chapter 2, verse 24, we read, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant. Do you remember what the Bible means when it talks about God remembering? I tried to clarify this for us a few weeks ago. God is omniscient, all-knowing. Divine omniscience doesn't forget things like we do, not in a literal mental sense. God doesn't lose his keys. God doesn't forget to change the air filter. And God doesn't forget his people. When the Bible talks about God remembering, it's teaching us something about God's action, not his recollection. Verse 24 means that God is preparing to take action. 
He's preparing to take action for his people and he will act in accordance with his covenant. This is the first time the term covenant is used in Exodus. It's a weighty theological concept. One of the most important words in the entire Bible. Whole books have been written on this one term. But the best definition of this term, I think, comes from a children's book. It's the same children's book that we give to families when we baptize their very young children here at Faith Church, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Covenant means that God loves us, his people, with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's covenant. Believer, covenant means that when you are in pain, when you are groaning and praying in pain, God hears you. Just like he heard the prayers of the Israelites so long ago. And maybe God is preparing to take action for you right now. Or maybe the time is not yet right. Rather than taking things into your own hands, maybe you should wait. Be patient. Wait for instruction from the Lord. Trust Him. Believer covenant also means that when you have failed, when you have been impatient and immature in your spirituality as Moses was, it means that God is not done with you. There is hope. There is a future for you after your failure. How do we know that? Covenant. Because God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And on that note, the story of Exodus begins. Let's pray. Oh God, you are faithful when we are unfaithful. Thank you for that. Thank you that you have established a covenant with us, your people. You have broken into our lives and formed a forever relationship with us. You love us on our best day and you love us on our worst. As we begin this journey going through the book of Exodus over the next many months, God, I pray for myself and for each one of our members here at Faith Church, for anyone who might join us in this series, that this would indeed be a journey, a journey into a deeper knowledge of you, God, the one true God of the universe, that we would come to know you intellectually, but not just that relationally. Oh God, work in hearts. Show us our sin. Show us our pride and our impatience. Convict us of it. Draw us to yourself. Help us to be faithful to the work you have called us to in this world, your world. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.